Welcome to Real Time, a podcast for realtors brought to you by CREA, the Canadian Real Estate Association. And we're all about sparking conversations with inspiring, informative people about all things Canadian real estate and topics that impact realtors and really all of us. I'm your host, Erin Davis, for what I hope will be a memorable Episode 9. CREA's annual Realtors Care Week is a chance to double down on all of our efforts to make a bigger collective impact on the homelessness situation in Canada. Here in this country, more than 35,000 people experience homelessness every night. In recognition of this, CREA's annual Realtors Care Week 2020 this year aims to raise awareness, initiate meaningful conversations, and advocate for change to help end and prevent homelessness once and for all on a national level. To support these efforts, Episode 9 of Real Time features Métis Cree best-selling author of From the Ashes and PhD candidate Jesse Thistle, who sheds light on his personal experience in and out of homelessness and what he hopes to accomplish through his work as a scholar. Additionally, a little later, we're joined by the Honorable Ahmed Hussein, Liberal Minister of Families, Children and Social Development, to gain insight into the Canadian government's position on helping ensure every Canadian has a safe, affordable place to live. First though, Jesse Thistle. What an honor it is to have you sharing our real-time podcast today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jesse. It means a lot to us. Well, it's a pleasure to be here with you, Aaron. You've shed light on your personal experience in and out of homelessness, and now you're looking to the future at what you hope to accomplish through your work as a scholar for someone who has literally been there and done that. I know there's no singular reason for why people experience homelessness. It is such a complex issue affecting everybody differently, Jesse. So let's talk about you. Can you tell us about your own experience and how you got to where you are today? Sure, yeah. I'm a, I guess I would say I'm a consumer survivor of the streets. I lived often on the streets from 97 Till I got off them in 2011, uh, I, my homelessness was cyclical. I stayed in emergency shelters, slept on the streets. Uh, got, I had apartments in that time too uh, for brief periods of time. But what, what happened with me really was uh, trauma uh, from my early childhood experiences. I'm an indigenous person who comes from northern Saskatchewan. I'm Métis Cree and my family fell apart because of this something called intergenerational trauma and uh, my my we were lost to CAS uh, through actions from my father and I ended up being raised in uh, Brampton without any sense of myself as an indigenous person always searching around getting in lots of fist fights as a frustrated young man and uh, I eventually um, started using drugs and alcohol and then I uh, ended up on the streets and so m- my book really tracks my life you know from uh, my earliest memory on the road allowances in northern Saskatchewan through to when I come out the other side uh, out of my cyclical homelessness in 2008. And then I become a scholar uh, by going to university. Uh, and that's what I am now. I'm an assistant professor. That's a huge leap from where you go dot, dot, dot. And then I became a scholar by going to university. How did that happen? 
Well, I had a wonderful wife that kicked my butt every day that took me out of the, when I was finishing my rehab, uh, when I, I went through the program, it was a year-long program called Harvest House. After I was court-ordered, I got in quite a bit of trouble with the law, and my sentence was to go to this rehab and uh, do one year instead of, in lieu of my sentence. And at the end of it, my, my wife was there, and she took me in and gave me a place to stay in Toronto. She got me my first job cutting French fries, which I'm still very proud. <laughs> uh, I was the best French fry cutter they ever had. And uh, then I went on to work construction for a couple of years, and all the while... I had made a promise to my grandmother that I would go to university and give it a shot and, and really relearn to read and write properly at an academic level. And then while I was there, I figured, I figured out I was pretty good at it and I just got really good grades. And so I just continued doing what, what felt natural to me. And I, the end of it was me winning a bunch of academic awards and then uh, being asked uh, to tender my application in for this assistant professorship, which I, I, I got the job. You know, I got the job in 2018. So now you talked, Jesse, about a promise you made to your grandmother that you were going to university. Were there other people in your family who had gone on to uh, post-secondary learning? Not in my direct nuclear family. So my grandparents never went. My mom didn't go. My dad disappeared in 1982. He's presumed to be murdered. Mm. He didn't go. He had drug issues. My brother Josh was an RCMP. He didn't go. I think he went to some sort of community college for work. Uh, and then my other brother Jerry, I think he he dabbled in art school, but he never completed. So I'm the first one to go and complete my degree, yeah. So how does one get from university to writing a book that ends up on a bestsellers list? For many authors, it's a matter of writing a story and then shopping and having it rejected and rejected and rejected. I was one of the very fortunate few when HarperCollins came to me and said, you've got a story. So I was kind of, in my own experience, kissed by God. Did you also have that celestial kiss or how did you come to write a book, Jesse? I did. Uh, I, that's a great way to put it. Celestial kiss is how I would say it too. Uh, no, what happened was I was in university and I uh, first couple years were difficult and uh, because I was just out of rehab and I was just a blue collar construction worker. I couldn't read very well and I had to really put in a lot of work and effort. I'd get up at 4.30 like I was working construction and, and force the words uh, in the journals that I was reading to make sense. I'd have to read four and five times sometimes uh, over and over and over. And I did this for the first two years of school. And because I was so dedicated and I put in the time, around the third year of university, I started to outclass the people that I was in school with who had always been in school because mm-hmm. uh, I just had a better work ethic, I guess. And then by the fourth year, I had, like, I, I never got below an A. I got, mo- most of my marks are A pluses. And that qualified me for the Governor General's Award in academics. Uh, I finished the top student at a 50,000 at York University. And then I applied for these two major doctoral awards, uh, the Trudeau and the Vanier uh, doctoral awards. They're the most prestigious in Canada. They're like the Rhodes Scholarship for Canada. Mm-hmm. And... The way I won all three of these things, no one at York University had ever done that before. And so the Toronto Star came to do a a story on my life. And when I was talking with the reporter, he's like, you know, you're a little bit older uh, to be at school and 
I know you have a life story. What, 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 how did you get here? And, you know, and so I said, well, if you really want to know, uh, my journey off the streets starts with me uh, robbing a 7-Eleven. And that's really where my education uh, starts in the prison system. And so he's just like, that's the story, Jesse. Mm. So he wrote the story about like how I got off the streets and the awards. And a couple weeks later, I got a call from Simon and Schuster and they said, well, we're interested in uh, publishing your story. And so when I went into that meeting, they asked me, do you have anything written about your life? And I said, well, I kind of do. I've been doing my AA steps since I got out of treatment in 2009. This is 2017 when they asked me. And so I sent that to them and they called me back right away and offered me a major book contract. So I didn't even have a book when I was offered a contract. Wow. Now, Jesse, why do you think From the Ashes has resonated so loudly and been so successful? Well, I think it has to do with that it's a universal theme, right? I deal with homelessness as the primary theme, but there's also family dysfunction, there's trauma, there's addiction, there's a lot of issues that resonate in the, the national consciousness around colonialism and indigenous peoples. And so all of these kind of mash together. And I also wrote the book in a non-accusatory way. I wasn't lecturing at people about these issues. I just presented my life as it happened. And so that gives people a kind of a safe way to interact with these issues. And then it's relatable because I'm not lecturing at them. They're like, oh yeah, I can see my uncle's story or my father's, or this is kind of what our family went through. And so in the way I told it, it's got a broad reach that's not just for people who are interested in indigenous issues or even homeless issues. Uh, there's broader issues like love, family love, brotherhood that are at play here. And those are all issues that we're going to be talking about in today's very special episode with you, Jesse. And when we return, Jesse Thistle is going to read from From the Ashes. This year, we're encouraging realtors to learn about homelessness in Canada, efforts to prevent it and to end it, and what the realtor community is all about. Most of you already know, by volunteering and raising funds, realtors across this country of ours are playing meaningful roles in the communities where you work and live. Jesse, would you honor us with a reading from From the Ashes? And before you do, please set up the surrounding story to what you're about to read, would you? Sure, yeah. This is a story dear, dear to my heart. It's about one of my friends who are one of the only people out there that looked out for me. And I'd been on the streets off and on for a few years at this point. Uh, and I'm in a shelter in Brampton called Wilkinson Road. And uh, I had a friend there named Abdi, and he was like a 70, 65, 70-year-old 70 Somalian man who developed an alcoholic uh, problem when he came to this country because he didn't fit in. And uh, every night before bed, he would look out for me and just protect me and make sure that nobody hurt me. And uh, I miss my friend, and I think of him all the time. So this, if Abdi, if you're out there listening, this is for you, buddy. The King of Somalia. Good night, Abdi, you crusty old bastard, I said and rested my head on my pillow. Abdi was a Somalian man of about 65. He was my buddy and always slept in the bed next to me at the homeless shelter. Samantha was off on the woman's side. That was my girlfriend then. Hey, I said a minute later, I've been meaning to ask you. 
You said you were the king of Somalia. Is that true? As expected, Abdi's face flushed and his eyes bulged. Would I lie, peasant? Of course I am the king of Somalia. How dare you question my royal blood? Obviously, I knew he wasn't Somali royalty. I like joking with Abdi to get him going, and he'd do the same with me. It was our only form of entertainment in this horrible, yet hospitable place. Life hadn't been good to Abdi. He'd fled Somalia with his family when civil war broke out in the early 90s. Soon after, he'd become an alcoholic and his wife had left him for another man. Abdi would reminisce about his homeland, telling me how he used to shepherd massive herds of cattle between Kenya and Somalia, and how he'd sit every night watching the orange-red African sunset. By the way his eyes lit up, I could see it was something he missed dearly. I tried to imagine how hard it must have been for him to be forced out of his homeland, only to end up in a homeless shelter in a foreign country that seemingly didn't want him or his problems. Hey, Thistle, Abdi said as he leaned over. You know how I know you're a real streeter like me? Uh, I don't know, maybe it's in the way I drink the rest of the old English piss water? He cringed. No, that's just disgusting. Dirty Canadian drinking dirty American beer. No young blood. It's in the way you sleep. How do you mean? And, wh and why are you watching me while I sleep? I always watch out for you, he said, when you sleep, to make sure no one steals your stuff. I thought about it, and he was right. I watched out for him, too. It was just what friends did in this place. Indian, you've had your shoes stolen so many times, he said. You sleep with them on. See? He pulled up his blanket, exposing his grungy, muddy black boots, and smiled. You see those other young guys? Abdi pointed at two young, uh, men with their shoes placed under their cots. They're little puppies, down on their luck momentarily. One day, if they're at it long enough, they'll learn like we did. Never take your shoes off. Having no shoes and homeless was the worst. It could take a day or two to find a new pair that fit from the donation box, and that was if you were lucky. Other times you'd have to leave the shelter shoeless at 7 a.m. to go and wait at the chaplain's office at 8 a.m. to get a voucher to take up to the Sally Ann up the street so they could outfit you with a new pair. Or you'd had to go without for a few days or steal a pair from Zellers and risk your freedom. When you were shoeless in winter, it was almost unbearable. I surveyed the shelter beds only about a th third of the guys had their shoes on like we did. I never noticed that about myself, but every night I tied my shoes on with triple, even quadruple knots, just to give myself a chance of keeping thieves from stealing the shoes right off my feet. And even then, they even got them sometimes. I guess I do sleep with my shoes on, eh, Abdi? I said and laughed. And that's a story about my buddy Abdi. Ooh. Wow, there is so much there. It's heartbreaking. It's heartwarming. It's eye-opening. And it just shoes. It's all it comes down to. I mean, we're talking in such broad terms about homelessness and shelters and Realtors Care Week and 
all of these things that are such big picture things, but it comes down to shoes, to safety, to friendship, to dignity. And in a way, Jesse, I think so much of your story is about the importance of family mm-hmm. and relationships and home. What has the family of a friend like Abdi or with your wife and where you are now, what has family come to mean to you and what should it mean to those of us looking in? Well, I learned on the streets through people like Abdi and my own experiences that we ultimately, newcomer, native and, you know, Canadians, uh, we walk in the same moccasins and that's the moccasins of our families and our homes and our love, right? And that that's everything. That's who we are as people. And that's so important to recognize, to humanize, to understand. And so... By telling my story and sharing a little bit of my friend Abdi, I've kind of brought the reader to walk with me to see how it actually feels to be homeless, to have a friend to watch out for you, to watch out for your shoes. And so my hope is that it humanizes the experience and gets people to care, you know. And yet the dichotomy of you coming from the original inhabitants of this country and Abdi being here new to Canada, and yet being metaphorically in the same boat, wearing the same moccasins, as you say, and holding on to those for dear life every night as you sleep. It's just, it's stark. If you think about our our paths, though, we're both impacted by colonialism, like Ethiopia has a history of uh, repelling colonial invasions and uh, destabilization, you know, by uh, invading Italians and in the 1940s. And so my people have a history of, of colonial trauma because of the way we were displaced from our lands. And so we actually do walk very similar paths, you know. Jesse, what do you think Canadians need to know about homelessness? I'm sure there are just as many wrong ideas and false beliefs surrounding it as there are realities cutting through to what is true. What do you want us to know? I want Canadians to know that homelessness is not like an individual choice and it's not a product of like addiction or mental health or bad choices, right? It's really a policy choice and of bad governance over time. And so we're not building the right amount of housing, uh, public housing on par with the way that the population has grown for the last 40 years. And so the lower rungs of society who don't own homes, who've been renting at high costs, are now being pushed into homelessness. And that's really, really important to understand because you see things like tent cities all across the country now Mm -hmm. where this didn't exist 10 years ago. And the problem through this lens, you have to really understand, you have to understand like all those people didn't make that choice. There's there's larger uh, socioeconomic pushes from bad governance over time that are creating this problem. And so we need to uh, change our policy, vote in people that are going to change some of these things and start looking to creative solutions in governance to fix the issues. Jesse, what would you say to those who say that the, the let's say the, the tent cities and parks, and this is a situation that is, uh, it has ramped up, as you say, exponentially here in my home city of Victoria, British Columbia. And I'm, I'm hearing and reading a lot of thoughts on this. So 
Address this one for me, if you would. Those who say that the bad governance is the governance that has allowed this to happen. What bad governance are you talking about? I'm talking about 30, 40 years of successive parties kind of doing the same thing, you know, uh, over time. And this is municipal governments. This is provincial, federal, and they're of all different stripes. They're all, they've all not focused on homelessness and housing and made it a priority. And a culmination of their decisions has created this. So you can't really place it on one particular party or our, our strata of government. This is all, you know, all levels of governance have created this issue. And so it's going to take all of them to get out of this. Jesse, tell me, what are some of the biggest obstacles preventing Canadians who really desperately want to with overcoming homelessness? I think that we need to realize that we need to have a government, a federal government that works with the provinces and cities to commit to ending homelessness. And I think a critical first step is is found in that federal leadership. And uh, I think uh, I, I'm on the, the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness, and they've developed a six-point plan called Recovery for All. And I'll just go through a little bit of that because I think people need to understand what this program is and then, you know, start to maybe put a little pressure on the governments to try and implement it. So we need a federal commitment with timelines and targets uh, to the prevention and elimination of homelessness. And this has to be a priority with the expanded federal investments in community-based homelessness responses. Number two, a national guaranteed minimum income to ensure those in greatest need have minimum financial resources to help them meet their basic needs and prevent homelessness when times are tough, like we're seeing all around us now. Mm -hmm. Number three, construction of 300,000 new permanently affordable and supportive housing units and enhanced rental supports for low-income Canadians to address Canada's housing and homelessness crisis. Number four, meaningful implementation of the right to housing. Um, and this is uh, to resolve surface uh, inequalities and systemic structural breakdowns that contribute to homelessness and housing needs. Uh, number five, an implementation to curtail the impacts of financial uh, financialization of rental housing markets. So the building of condominiums, we've got to start rezoning and building co-op housing in large mar uh, all across uh, our major cities. And lastly, we need a realistic implementation of an urban and rural indigenous housing and homelessness strategy. This was supposed to come in June 2017. It just wasn't launched. And this uh, strategy, indigenous housing strategy, I believe, must be developed and implemented by urban, rural, and northern indigenous peoples themselves and their housing and service providers. And those that's a recovery for all, and this is a really clear path that I think Canadians should be made aware of uh, to start pressuring our governments to implement. Where can people find that list, recovery for all? Uh, it's at www.caeh.ca. As far as you know, has that been seen by anyone 
in Ottawa or in provincial government or even in city councils? Do you know if this message is landing in the right laps these days? Yeah, there are there are places like Edmonton, uh, Medicine Hat, Fort McMurray, Guelph, Chatham, um, Dufferin County that are, are moving towards making this a reality. And you can see their numbers in homelessness already starting to drop, you know, uh, by uh, this positive action towards ending homelessness. How much has COVID mitigated steps forward? I mean, just before we sat down for our interview today, I, I read an article on cbc.ca about a man in Toronto who is now starting to build little houses on caster wheels that have insulation, and, and he's doing what he can with meager resources to try and help those who are facing a winter where shelters may not even be available because of COVID. The numbers are just overwhelming everyone and everything in the system. What do you think COVID has done in terms of 2020 and, and helping the homelessness situation, Jesse? Well, it's certainly made it more visible, right? We were seeing tent, tent cities in places like here in Hamilton, Toronto, Victoria, Vancouver, Edmonton is another one. These places, uh, the homelessness has become so visible all of a sudden. And I, I don't, we, we're not really sure if it's an increase in homelessness or if it's a, a decrease in rentable space. We just, uh, it's too early to say definitively. I would say personally, yes. Um, definitely, it's COVID has exposed the cracks and there's a lot more people falling in between them, like addictions have gone up, mm -hmm. uh, rates of overdose have gone up. And certainly, I, I believe housing uh, has become more of an issue, but we just don't know if that's really actually increased homelessness. Ah, okay. As you know, Jesse, this episode complements Realtors Care Week 2020, which aims to raise awareness of homelessness in Canada, even as we are seeing it with our own eyes. As you mentioned, you know, the proliferation of tent cities and people being forced out now who were just living on the financial edge and have lost their jobs because of shutdowns and because of the pandemic. And we're talking about the realtors who are listening right now. What can Canadians do to make a difference? Donate. I think donation to orgs uh, where you live is, is critical. Volunteer. These places are always short-staffed, mm -hmm. right? And there's nothing that can replace human power, human caring, just like that guy who's building those shelters, right? Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and then on the political side, I would say talk to your officials and find out if they're committed to something like recovery for all or Housing First, or any of these programs that have been proven to work, what are they actually doing, you know, about the issue? From the individual to the large organizations, how can they use their voice and influence to help, Jesse? I would say vote. Voting for who, you, who has a platform on housing is critical, and who, who's made, made it a center stage issue. Because, you know, it is one of the most critical issues in Canada today. And it doesn't get the, the platform that it deserves. And then beyond that, as an Indigenous person, I would always ask voters 
to look and see if the people that they're voting for who have these housing platforms, are they making the truth and reconciliation recommendations or the murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls calls to action? Are they making those uh, important issues? Because they're interlinked, right? They're, the homelessness and these issues are interlinked. Mm-hmm. Uh, they go back through our colonial history and they need to be addressed. If we just leave them, they're going to keep getting worse and worse. Certainly, before we sat down for this conversation, it probably crossed your mind you were going to be talking to Canadian Real Estate Association members. What went through your mind? If there was one message, you could just say, hey, listen, this is what we need from you. You've got the microphone. You've got the podium. Jesse, what do you want our members to hear? Well, you guys are part of the the apparatus that gets families into homes, you know, and so... Uh, help uh, the orgs that you see out there that are working on the ground with the, with people that are coming out of homelessness and try to make housing accessible for them. You know, be that by donating, be that by uh, helping people into their first homes or, you know, uh, volunteering, you know, at soup kitchens or whatever. Just like help out. You know, you guys are like an army of people that have the power to do this. And I really, for, for me to you guys, I, I want, I, we need help. And we'd love it if you threw in a hand. We started out talking today about family, about Abdi in the shelter watching over you, about the importance of family to us all as individuals, as a society. What does that come down to for you as we wrap up? What is your family to you now? And what are you trying to show them, to surround them with? as you live out the rest of your life, Jesse, this meaningful life that you have taken on? Well, what I realized most is that home is love, right? Home is love. And you get that love from your family and from those around you. And so, you know, that's the most important message, you know. And so getting people housed is also about making people feel loved, you know. And so... To me, the issues, those two issues are, are intertwined, they're braided together, and that, that's what I want people to know most. We will be watching you, Jesse. We'll be listening for you, but more importantly, I think we will be helping to spread your word for you. So thank you so much for your time today, for sharing your message, and hopefully opening some eyes and some ears to what the homeless in Canada really, truly want. Well, thank you, Aaron. This has been a dream of mine. I listened to you growing up, and here I am on the, the podcast. You know, this is the, the world is a wild place sometimes. So, thank you very much. Amen to that, brother. Thank you. And thank you for sharing your story with us today, allowing us to untie those triple knots and walk in your shoes just for a little bit. It's such an honor. It really, truly is. Congratulations. Thank you. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. That is award-winning scholar, best-selling author, Jesse Thistle. From the Ashes is an amazing read, and we're so lucky to have had him here with us today to tell his story. You heard Jesse speak in this episode of Real Time about the role and responsibility of government at all levels for ending homelessness in Canada. Well, recently, CREA CEO Michael Bork sat down with Canada's Minister for Families, Children and Social Development. The Honourable Ahmed Hussein shared with Michael his government's plan to address homelessness, including targets for eliminating it, 
increasing the supply of different types of housing, supporting the national housing strategy, and funding. We'd like to share some of that discussion with you now. Michael asked the minister about something that really caught all of our attention back in September, the speech from the throne, which laid out an ambitious plan to tackle homelessness and affordable housing. The Honorable Ahmed Hussein was asked how the government plans to deliver on those commitments. The speech from the throne is, is a statement of intent. It's broad outlines. Of course, in the fall, we will late fall, we will have a, a fiscal update that will provide a little bit more detail in terms of the money and, and then uh, fiscal projections into the future. But a couple of things I'll say about that. Uh, speech from the throne recognized that as a government, because of the national housing strategy, we've made a lot of progress in, in reducing chronic homelessness. And the previous target that we had was to reduce chronic homelessness by 50%. But the speech from the throne has now indicated that as a government, our government, the Trudeau government, will eliminate chronic homelessness entirely. And I think we can do that. We have the resources, we have the political will, we have the collaboration with provinces and territories and municipal leaders that can be seen as a result of our, our national response to COVID-19. So now's the time to do it. And we will do whatever we can in terms of providing the leadership and the resources to eliminate chronic homelessness from Canada. We can do it and we, it, it, it's long overdue and we will be the government that does that. The second thing we committed to doing is to reinforce the elements of the national housing strategy that are working very well. The rental construction financing initiative, the national housing strategy co-investment fund. Those housing streams of funding are working really, really well and they're very good government policy because we get the money back, most of it anyway. And we're providing high quality housing with energy efficiency standards as well as accessibility standards. For realtors, increasing the supply of housing is a top priority. So to that end, CREA has been encouraging the federal government to use its infrastructure agreements with provinces and municipalities to reduce the barriers in the supply of housing. Minister Hussein was asked for insight into his discussions with Minister of Infrastructure and Communities Catherine McKenna and other colleagues in this regard. Minister McKenna and I work really, really closely. There is hardly a week that goes by without us, us having a very in-depth conversation or, of either her file or my file. We, we are intimately involved in making sure that housing and infrastructure go hand in hand. And, you know, as your members would know, uh, the more we invest in infrastructure, the more housing becomes available. Transport infrastructure other forms of inf community infrastructure enables housing. We all know that. So you'll be excited to know that our government's uh, commitment to investing in infrastructure in communities, in transit, in, in, in other regional transportation links, as well as uh, green infrastructure, all of those things, water, wastewater, uh, you know, green initiatives, all of that is there. In fact, we're increasing those investments. And I strongly believe that there is a very strong link between the two. And the, high, the more we invest in infrastructure, the more housing we can build in this country and the more available housing stock uh, becomes, uh, becomes available to Canadians. You've seen that during COVID-19, for example, what is raising the prices in some urban centers in Canada is not so much the market uh, in terms of the 
the uh, the uh, the demand it's the supply the supply is tightening because of the disruption of covid-19 so when you have limited supply you also have price appreciation and so you know less and less people can afford a home and so we're very concerned about the supply but you can unlock more supply and incentivize more supply when you build more transit when you invest in more regional transportation or infrastructure and so on so minister mckenna and i work very hard together we we collaborate closely and uh, and i am one of her biggest supporters in cabinet when it comes to uh, to investing more in infrastructure the second point i wanted to make is leadership from the municipal uh, leaders you know for us to to get housing right it can't just be federal leadership yes we will bring the lion's share of the resources under the national housing strategy we'll bring the leadership back into the housing game which we have since 2017 but municipal leaders can do a lot they can they can provide more land for housing they can speed up the the permitting and approvals process they can also do a lot to unlock money as part of the national housing strategy and i've been one of the biggest champion of the national housing strategy when it comes to municipal leaders i engage with them almost on a weekly basis to really encourage them to move forward on housing innovation on being more ambitious in terms of uh increasing the housing stock so there is some tools in their hands uh that they can exercise and i've been uh working with them to exercise those tools more last but not least uh just two days before the speech from the throne i announced uh an a very interesting new uh funding stream called the rapid housing initiative 1 billion dollars to permanently house the most vulnerable people in our communities uh so under the when i say rapid housing it is only for modular housing and other forms of housing that can be built really quickly in 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 months not years and enabling municipal leaders to to purchase hotels and motels and convert it into housing so it's a very unique uh funding stream uh to house people who are now housed temporarily or who are on the street to house them permanently so that fund will at the minimum build 3000 new affordable housing units and hopefully more if there's other contributions Crea CEO Michael Bork asked in their discussion how the minister's thoughts on housing have changed in the amount of time he spent with the portfolio realtors he said are interested in the whole spectrum from rentals through to home ownership the rental construction financing initiative it's 13.75 billion dollar fund and it's 100% financing so we get all the money back but through that process we lend that money to private developers to build uh rental housing mixed housing and you know a portion of it is 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 subsidized but the rest are market rent but by sheer numbers by putting more rental stock on the market we're stabilizing the rental market we're enabling more, more people to have access to high quality rental units and as part of rcfi there's also conditions to access that money the developer has to build close to transit close to workplaces and community centers and schools and they have to meet minimum energy efficiency and accessibility standards so you have this program 13.75 billion dollars 100% financing so we get all the money back but we have these great outcomes we're building communities we're building huge communities uh, you know we're not talking about one building with in some of these projects is like four five different towers uh one of the projects i unveiled in london ontario is two towers side by side 
uh, rental construction financing initiative uh, built that. They will be the two tallest towers between Mississauga and Calgary. Uh, so we're building, you know, density. We're building communities. Uh, so rent is a huge part. We we can't forget about the rental market. The second thing that I'm really excited about is the Canada Housing Benefit. This is a portable rental supplement that goes directly to individuals. It's not connected to our housing unit. So if you receive it and you move, it moves with you. So it is cost matched and cost shared by provinces. Uh, we've signed that agreement with a number of provinces now. In the case of Ontario, for example, the Canada-Ontario housing benefit is up and running. And uh, it is to enable people to exit shelters and get rental housing or to, to, to go from being underhoused uh, to, to being adequately housed. So let me give you an example, like a family of five living in a one bedroom, they would be able to get the rental, the Canada housing benefit to then access a three bedroom or whatever, right? So, so that's the Canada housing benefit is another one. And then more investments as part of the bilateral agreements. We have bilateral, bilateral agreements with provinces and territories. So we're in a situation where now the government of Canada has signed housing agreements with each and every province and territory. And as part of those agreements, billions of dollars are, are, are flowing to build uh, and sustain community housing, co-ops, co-op units, subsidized units, um, and, and rental supplements. So, you know, as I said, since 2017, we've really come back into the housing game and we're providing not only that federal leadership, but tremendous amounts of resources but also enabling yeah. more Canadians to, 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 get, to get their first home. That's the Honourable Ahmed Hussein, Minister of Families, Children and Social Development, in conversation recently with CREA CEO Michael Bork. Well, this has been what I hope was an enlightening episode of Real Time with author of the astounding and unforgettable From the Ashes scholar, Métis Cree social activist, Jesse Thistle, on his life. From high school dropout to rising Indigenous scholar and professor of Métis studies at York University, I can't wait to read the next chapter in his life. And our sincere thanks to Minister Hussein for taking time to talk with our Korea members. Hey, speaking of which, we love to hear from you. And thanks for calling our line to leave the best advice you've received as a realtor. Let's listen in. Hi, this is Georges Gauthier from Montreal. And my advice is the following. When I first started in sales, my boss told me there were three types of employees. Basically, the ones who didn't do their job, and those were pretty easy to deal with because they were on descent on their merry way. Then there were the ones who were doing their job, and those were basically the ones who were just staying there and doing the job. And then there were the ones who did their job and more than what the client expected. And those actually got the referrals, they got the promotions, they got more money, they got bonuses. So it, it was true, actually, of a sales rep back uh, in the 80s. Well, guess what? It is the same thing with uh, brokers and real estate agents. The ones who don't do the job, they're not referred and basically they have no clients. The ones who just do the job and no more, they just go along and get business, but they don't really thrive. The ones that actually deliver more than the order, well, those actually get ahead of everybody and get referrals, they get more business, and they actually, I think, have uh, more fun in the business. 
thank you, merci to Georges Boucher from Montreal, and reminding us all to go the extra mile, or kilometer. Got some wisdom you want to share? Just call this number and leave us a message, 1-888-768-6793. That's 1-888-768-6793. We look forward to hearing from you. Hey, just before we go, here's another reason you're going to want to subscribe to this podcast, because our 10th Real Time is a look back at 2020, the twists and turns, and why for some, especially realtors, buying that day planner was not a waste of time after all. Plus, like everyone else, we'll be looking ahead at the year to come. Thank you for taking some time to listen to episode nine of Real Time. It meant a lot personally to get to talk to Jesse and to hear from Minister Hussein himself about what our government is doing as we move into the new year. Real Time is a real family production produced by Rob Whitehead and Alphabet Creative. I'm Erin Davis. We'll talk with you again soon. And don't forget to subscribe.